Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Schaefer's Market Mashup. Your host here, Patrick Martin, pleased to bring on another very esteemed guest, Steve Sears, President and COO of OptionSolutions.com. Steve, thanks for coming on. It's great to finally meet you and get this going. Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me today. If you're familiar at all with options trading and its history, you know Steve is a legend in the business. So today we're going to talk about options, solutions, various strategies, dive into the psychology of investing. I've heard Steve's got some stories he can regale me with, and we're going to try it to tie it all together with some current market events going on. But first, you know, for new guests, I like to open it up with some background information, your career, your high points, your low points. You have a bio that could go on for days. So I'll hand it off to you and just... You know, tell everybody, you know, how you got to where you are now and the, sure. the story along the way. Well, thanks again for having me. It's a real treat and honor because, you know, Bernie Schaefer was one of the first people to really taught me about the business. When I was a, a wee lad, <laughs> I, at the, uh, I was a reporter at Dow Jones Newswires in the Wall Street Journal, and I had this deep fascination with what went on inside of the stock market. My goal when I first started was, to understand what it meant when the newscaster said in the evening that the stock market rose or fell by by whatever points. And one day, the old man called me into the office and he says, Sears, we know that you're interested in what actually happens to you in the market. We want you to cover options for us to start that beat. And I said, what the hell are options? And he says, we don't know, but we think it's important. Go figure it out. <laughs> and, and, and there began this incredible fascination with this, this world of, of puts and calls. And I got very lucky at the time because... So many of the people who are truly like world-class, great traders and investors, mm -hmm. at the time, it's sort of been operating by themselves in the options market. Nobody really knew that they existed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was lucky with the timing because I got to call these, these people up. And then they'd say, and they'd explain to me how volatility actually works and put calls and pricing and strategies and things like this. One thing... Uh, that sort of led, led to another, and the fascination hasn't really uh, ever subsided. I had a big story, a big miscarriage of capitalism story, where wherein I once asked one of the exchange executives, why is it that blue chip options only trade at one exchange, and they're not multiply listed? And uh, I didn't get a very good answer. In fact, I was told that it's not a story, which, of course, telling journalists it's not which, a story, you know it is. That's when you lean forward well, a little bit, yeah. Right, so fast, so fast forward, we wrote about it, and then the very next day, the uh, Department of Justice Antitrust uh, Division launched, launched an investigation, then the SEC, mm -hmm. so I ended up changing the industry dramatically in terms of the listings, the regulatory structure, the competitive structure. I went to work with Sandy Frusher as, as the as a, at the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, mm -hmm. the oldest stock exchange in America, mm -hmm. by two years. That was a turnaround. Uh, it was sold to the to the Nasdaq, yep. and then Bill Porter, who founded E-Trade, wanted to automate electronic trading. Mm -hmm. And I got super lucky and got to be part of that at the International Securities Exchange, which went public on the on the New York, and then got bought by Nasdaq. And then after all that was over, uh, uh, I went back to to Dow Jones. This time as a columnist at Barrons. Mm -hmm. 
and started coverage of the options markets for Barron's.com. Also write the, the striking price column for the print magazine and continue to do that, although no longer on a full-time basis because Bill Brodsky, the former chairman of the CBOE, his son Michael Brodsky and I have started Option Solutions, mm -hmm. which is a, an RIA that helps people use options to to curate their portfolios. That, in a very long nutshell, is, is uh, how I got here. Yeah, I love the personal bias here, of course, as a liberal arts major, uh, worked at the student newspaper, have my own pseudo quasi-journalist adjacent background. Uh, yeah. I love that that's how you got your start and that you were the first to shine a light on this industry that right now is booming. I mean, could you ever have thought when you first started looking at this that you would see the volume that you see right now? No, it, it's funny. I remember back back in the late 90s that we traded a million contracts a day. It was a huge day. Mm -hmm. And I think we traded 38 million yesterday. Yeah. I never thought that I... <laughs> I never thought that I'd see anything this 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 big, quite quite frankly. I always knew that it was important, and that no matter what happened in the stock market, mm -hmm. the options market was really the probability lab, and I was fascinated by that. And I think more people are, are realizing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even I'd say in the last five years or half decade, it, it has blown up and it has become now mainstream. It's it's crazy, but. Yeah want to focus more on some of your website. I know you guys do a great job of outlining your guiding, your guiding principles. Uh, I, I pulled one quote from one of your articles. An investor must be willing to buy the stock at a lower price or to sell the stock at a higher price. In return, an investor can collect options premium. I yeah. love the way you break that down into a very simple, compact, concise way. Uh, but now with, you know, we're on a pod, would you care to expand on that philosophy a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that uh, that I think is always difficult for most for most people is trying to understand what exactly happens in the options market. Like my father told me long ago when I was uh, when I was a little kid, you never give people more than you know three choices because they'll never be able to make a decision. Mm -hmm. Well, in the options market, we have many different decisions to make, but there are four fundamental objectives that all investors have, regardless of how they choose to enter. This, the financial markets. Mm -hmm. Most people want to buy below the market. They want to sell above the market. They want to reduce risk, and they want to generate income. And what I found in my in my experience is that when you speak to people through those four key facts, mm -hmm. it helps them to make sense of of the options market, which for a variety of reasons, none of them good remains shrouded in complexities. A, a lot of what you discuss, I wouldn't say necessarily it's, it's a conservative strategy, but it you know, it pro is proactive in embracing certain principles, those four pillars. What specific sectors and stocks does that apply to in this current investing climate? Yeah, that, that's, that's, the great, that's the great question. Mm -hmm. There's no New Yorker correcting we have in the office that shows this guy sidling up to a bar and speaking to a couple, and he says, Sometimes I sell puts and sometimes I sell calls. It's a full life. And at, at this juncture in the market, it honestly depends on, on where you are, are situated. Mm -hmm. Rather than trying to prescribe or suggest one strategy, what you see is that 
there's almost a shifting or a segmenting of the demographics. So if you were to take, let's call like the millennial Reddit crowd, in- incredibly, these this group is oftentimes buyers of call options. Why? Because they use they use call options to rent exposure to stocks, and they're playing these 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 sort of moves. And then if you get up to that to to an older demographic, people in retirement trying to generate income, you often see them selling call options to generate uh, that income. We call that the income a conditional dividend. What's the condition of the dividend? Like you got to be willing to sell the stock higher, or if you do the put, the condition is you got to be willing to buy it lower. And then, sort of, what happens in between all of that? Well, all kinds of different things. Like people will use strategies to hedge events. They will use calls as proxies into events. They'll use long calls if they're concerned that the stock market is too high or the stock prices are run too far too fast. Why? Because an option controls the stock, but for a, a lot less money. Mm-hmm. And if, but if I had to like, if you force me into a corner and say like, like, what are the key strategies you see? I'm seeing tons of call buying in, in ways that defy everything that we were taught, which is that you you almost always want to be a seller of, of options. You want to collect the you you want to collect the premium. The millennial generation or the Reddit traders don't see that, um, and and that's new. And then you're seeing put selling has been a massive strategy during this bull market over the past, really since I, I say 2009-2010, even prior to that, of course. But that's become a mainstay. And then the old simple overwrite, I'm long the stock, I'm short a, a call, that's become huge too. And I see those basically as the three of the main strategies uh, constantly at play. Whereas before you might just see one way, what we call one way paper, or everyone doing the same thing. Now it's much more diverse for reasons of demographics and uh, and need. But do you see that demographic shifting in any other particular direction in the next, you know, five to ten years? Or do you see millennials and the Reddit crowd becoming somehow maybe a little more savvy to some of these strategies, like the selling of premium that you've talked about? I think so. I think uh, my prediction would be that going forward, you're going to see options will be increasingly used by people in retirement to generate income, mm-hmm. and I think that's I think that's going to be a huge a huge zeitgeist moment for the options market. If you look at people who are uh, you know just starting out their, their their financial journeys, I think you're going to see there that they too are going to evolve because what happens is. You, 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 people start out small and, and they make mistakes. And when you're just at the, at the onset of your career, you don't really have that much money. Most people don't have that much money to begin with. Mm-hmm. So they, they do things that might be outsized risks, but they're punched really. And they're learning what I call that karate kid, like wax on, wax off mm-hmm. type stuff. And then as they get a little bit bigger of a nest egg or bigger, their trading accounts increase in volume, then you, then you tend to sort of see an interest in, in, in more sophisticated or even nuanced strategies, and if, if you if you were to ask me, I would think that in ten years that this market is going to be bigger, and it's going to be much more uh, proactive and perhaps less reactive. I think people are getting more strategic. I think that dips into a little bit of the psychology of investing that I want to talk about. Equity investing and options trading are, are, are require 
different mindsets. How, how do you differentiate between the two, and, and what does that say about the psychology of options trading? I always like to say that an options investor is a thinking investor. And if you like, that. like stocks, you're, if you like your stocks, you're going to love options because options are the most sensitive, in my experience and view, they are the most sensitive instruments for which to understand stock. And, I, and in fact, this is something that, that I learned many years ago from Bernie Schaefer, amongst others. Like, why would you buy a stock or consider buying a stock without first looking to see what the options market mm-hmm. is, is, is telling you? And so psychologically speaking, in the past, I'm going back, let's say that up into the mid to late 90s, the options market, as you know, was dominated by, by retail investors. They're often horrible traders, speculators, all, you know, dentists, lawyers, uh, people who are picked off by these cold-blooded poor traders. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I saw your, yeah. your Twitter. You had the comic, or I think it was the, of like the doctor says, don't buy, or, you know, don't buy stocks in September. People are now seeing like, I think that the key lesson from the global financial crisis is that volatility is a fact and it happens to you or you can do something about it. And many people decided to try to do something about it. And for all the, you know, the, the five inputs that go into determining an options premium, volatility, implied volatility is, is the most important. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing people increasingly try to find ways to, mo- to, to monetize that, to control it, to use it to reshape returns. Because everybody likes to say that they're a long-term investor, but if you look at the Dalbar research, it shows that people actually behave like very bad short-term traders. Mm-hmm. Nobody owns anything long enough to actually benefit from the natural cycles of the stock market. And the, the psychology of the options investor, I, I believe, is a little bit more analytical. It's a little bit more clinical. You might own stock XYZ that is suddenly not in favor, but you have it for a low basis. What are you going to do with it? A lot of people are going to say, I'll just let it sit there and collect the dividends. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Others are going to say, well, I might be a seller of calls on it to, you know, to take advantage of, of that range bound, um, nature. So the options investor psychology to me is, is much more, is much more proactive. It's much more analytical and it's, it's oftentimes steadier because when things happen, the options investor tends not to just panic and, and push the button to, to, you know, to bail. And in fact, what we know is that when we see a big increase in hedging, as we have in, the, in recent weeks in the index mm-hmm. uh, markets, it tends to be, uh, have a calming effect on the stocks. And if we look today, the markets are off at, uh, continue to dance around record highs. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, is evidence that the options in, investor psychologically is, is a little bit hardier and more robust than is generally understood or appreciated. It's very well said. And circling back to what you said about implied volatility, I think options traders uh, you know, have that wrangled and they have a stronger grasp on that. As a journalist, how does one go about proliferating implied volatility to a broader market so you, we can attract more, basically educate an audience that wants to learn about the options market? I'll tell you, when I, when I started out many years ago, 
I was struck by the fact that there was no central barometer of, of the options market. And that at the time there were five exchanges. I think today there's 17 or, or more. And it occurred to me that what, what was needed was a Dow Jones industrial average for the options market. And thus I seized upon the CBOE volatility index or VIX. He named it the fear gauge. The CBOE hated it. And it's since morphed into, you know, into a tradable index, not just a tracking index. But I think in terms of, of education, the thing that we can all do is, is actually just have some serious, you know, honest dialogue about what it is and what it is not and not over-intellectualize it. Mm-hmm. Like, in, in, in many ways, the VIX has become financial silly putty. People talk about it as if they're, you know, with a passion, one might feel for their children or their, uh, or their, or their spouses. But really, all it is is a barometer of, you know, either, I, I say either fear or greed, and I'm simplifying it a little bit, but like, there's an, there's an old ditty that we, that we have, like, when the VIX is low, it's time to go, when the VIX is high, it's time to buy. Now, when the VIX is, is, is markedly higher, and 19 is basically the long-term average, it's, it tends to be an indication of, of massive fear in the market. And when it's low, it can, it can be an indication of complacency, but it could also mean that options premiums, i.e. put the calls, are not trading with fear and greed premiums. And it, it was uh, it was your Bernie Schaefer who really introduced me to uh, the contrarian mindset, mm. which I think is so helpful when thinking about volatility and then about options and then about investing. And it was the great Humphrey uh, Neal who said, Bernie quote this, that the public is right on the trend, but wrong on both ends. And so I think using VIX as sort of the the divining rod or the, or the volatility compass is a, is a great first step that anybody can take. And if you study it and seek to understand just the fear gauge, the tracking, the non-trading index, that you're going to have quite an advantage over everybody else. You can have another piece of data, another piece of the puzzle that other people will not necessarily have, and that'll make you a better stock investor. I over time. wholeheartedly agree, and at least on our digital content side, we try to bring the VIX up every possible chance we can get in our daily newsletters. And this isn't even meant to promote it. It's just meant to show that like that's the added tool that I think anyone just scanning a little piece of, okay, VIX is you know, lowest close since July – or, you know, three straight weekly losses. You just kind of slowly feed them that piecemeal and they will start to grow comfortable with it. But I'm glad you, you, you brought up the fear gauge stuff. So that has been, if you Google our site and type in fear gauge, you'll get just countless ones because that's how we, wow. we refer it to it. So wow. when I found out that you were the one that penned that, I needed to hear a little bit more of that. So give me some context behind, I guess you're the father of the fear gauge or the... Fun uncle? I, I don't know how to... I call myself Fix's uncle. I think Bob Whaley is the father. Okay. Um, the Vanderbilt now Duke professor. He actually came up with it. And necessity is truly the mother of invention. I, I just seized upon it. I, I needed a device mm-hmm. to tell the story. Um, and, and that was the one that I chose. And the, the crazy thing is back when I started to do it, if the column in the paper ever began... The CBOE volatility index, you know, rose while stock prices fell. It was almost an inside joke that there was nothing going on. Yeah. 
because that's just it's behaving the, the way that it should. And it's been fascinating to me to sort of see how it's morphed into some sort of, you know, like, I mean, there are people who technically analyze, you know, VIX movements and things like that. I pay a lot of attention to it insofar as I, on my machine, which I'm looking at now, I'll track the Dow, S&P 500 futures, S&P 500 cash, SPY, NASDAQ futures, NASDAQ cash, SKU, and then I get down to the VIX. And I use VIX as, still as a very broad barometer of premium. And the way that I think about premium, if the VIX is like a, a tree, the way I think about, you know, the shade cast from that tree is, is it is there a fear or a greed premium in, in the puts and calls? We all know that VIX's long-term average is 19. Mm-hmm. And so if VIX is trading at 15.55 as it is now, looking like it could go lower to 14.10, to me, the message there is that stocks are expensive, you know, you know, at relative levels, but options volatility is not. And if you have that sort of analytical options mindset that I know so many people have, that creates, that informs your strategy. Mm-hmm. Now, people will get much, much more into the into the weeds on this than they should, because the VIX futures curve is also is drifting with information. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've I've had Sibo guess on that if we we have unpack the VIX curve and how you really have to, dive, like you said, dive into the weeds and to, to find an opportunity there. But yeah, If you want to go down that, that deeper, more quantitative, wonkier route, it's there. But if you just look at your benchmark indexes, you look at the VIX, and you basically try to crack open VIX at an individual stock level. And by that I mean you look at your implied or realized volatilities. And you compare it to the VIX's level and the SPX, mm-hmm. you've got so much more information about the market or about your equity investments than anybody else. And I think that provides some edge. It's not, it used to be an extreme edge over other people. Mm-hmm. But as you pointed out earlier, the trading lives have exploded. And what we're talking about becomes a, a poorly kept secret, but a secret nonetheless. Yep. If you don't know it. So uh, we, we, we've danced around the topic about risk appetites now, and especially as it pertains to volatility. But you, you've got the three notable talking points right now being you know, the supply chain nightmare, energy prices, and inflation. If you're an options trader, what are you looking for with these storylines prevalent and seemingly not fading from storylines anytime soon? Well, thanks for asking me such an easy, an easy question. I, I, I think that what we're seeing in the options market is, is an excess of near-termism. Mm-hmm. So if you were to go take a look at the, at the CBOE futures curve, you're going to see that it's perhaps it's more steeply sloping, that it shows elevated risk in the future. That's a normal shape, mm-hmm. but the question is, is it more elevated than it should be? And, and, that's, and that's the giant debate. So you're seeing certain event risk priced in into what's called kinks in the curve, reflecting inflation, stagflation, uh, the debt ceiling not being lifted, rates rising, the 10 years now 1.65. These are being dealt with oftentimes in the options markets by focusing on weekly options. So if, you, if there are 252 trading days in a year, what you're seeing now is most people have gone, I won't say most, many people have gone 
from expressing views three months out into the future, where there's this perfect, often perfect mix of volatility and liquidity premium, yep. and they're bringing it in much, much closer. So you're seeing a lot of stuff occurring in one to two weeks segments. And, and that's really what the cadence is in, in the options market. Now, if you can engage in, in what we call you know, time arbitrage, there are ways to take advantage of some of the short-term and even long-term concerns within options. And that, that's sort of the, the beautiful sort of nature of, of the puss and calls. But people are staying in close. They're not taking on huge amounts of risk. And they're doing things that are reflexive, like the expectations are pretty tepid for third-quarter earnings. So what do people do? What you've seen a lot of people do is they just buy calls on stocks that they think are going to do better than expected. And guess what? So far, that strategy has worked. Now, you take inflation and stagflation, which are these terrible hobgoblins you throw in the supply chain issues. And strangely enough, what you see happen is there is a paucity of risk-averse trading going on. You're not seeing people do huge index hedges and SBX, which is really the strategic hedge, right. nor are you seeing a massive amount of tactical hedging or shorting in spider options or other, or, or, or other such uh, barometers. And to me, what that says is that the options market, which I think is the, you know, a smarter version of the stock market, is taking kind of a trust but verify approach, so they're still afraid of being outside of the market and missing out. But at the same time, they're not willing to go 100% in. And how that gets stacked out is largely a personal question, you know, determined by yes. psychology, age. Uh, Everything we just talked about. Yeah. But this is not, we're staying very close. It's like being in a close quarters combat, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to going on these long range reconnaissance patrols. You brought something up that I hadn't really hit me until then, but when, when we profile stocks that have an unusual options volume for either the day or for the week it's almost always the weeklies that are that are attracting the 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 most attention right now and it's been like that for the while a while now i had never really pieced that together but you you did that in a way that really kind of enlightened me here so thank you as we're gonna you know start to wrap up here anything crazy happened in in your career as far as a story-wise in the investing world that would be that would end up as a lesson for an invest uh potential options trader? Well, I'll tell you, one of the greatest lessons that I learned and that, and that I was taught was what, was what I call the good investor rule. Mm-hmm. And it basically animates everything that, I, you know, that, that I've ever done at, at option solutions, you know, all, all the way through to the, the journalism and book writing. Mm-hmm. And, and the good investor rule to me is simple but profound. And it was taught to me by a CBOE trader. He said, bad investors think of ways to make money. Good investors think of ways to not lose money. And I remember when I first heard that, it was just about the time of the of the internet bubble preparing to burst. This is like say like '99 or something like that. And uh, it, it, it struck me like a ton, like a like a ton of bricks. And then I began to be very aware of this sort of chasm between what is generally said and reported about the markets and what really happens amongst these more sophisticated. I don't, I don't, they used to be an institutional group, but now they're not. Now it includes individual investors who are just so, so sophisticated and smart. 
And that's probably my, like my greatest, probably my greatest, you know, insider realization from, from doing this. And, and as I said, it's, I've used it in, in every aspect of my, of my investing career from being a colonist and basically being one of the first guys to ever cover trading. Mm-hmm. We never covered trading in the big newsroom. We just like stocks went up, here's six corporate actions or a rating change. Nobody ever really focused on the hedge funds or people, you know, buying this and this, exactly. this commodity or that, or that index or stock. And we did that. And then I also introduced what's called a risk graph. So which has become kind of the common, you know, common furniture in a column. So we'll, we'll, we'll say, We'll think about the trade, but in deference to the good investor rule, we're also going to put the risk factor in. As opposed to somebody told me earlier today, he says, do you know why the securities laws at the state level are called blue sky? And I said, no, I don't. And he says, because they didn't want, they wanted to prevent these brokers from selling people blue sky. Just like, and that good investor rule has been a really, really good, um, meaningful sort of companion for me. And same with, with, like, with Humphrey, uh, with the contrarian, which I do credit Bernie for introducing me to. And I, I keep that book, you know, the contrarian, uh, investor, you know, close to me and I look at it. And like, you think about it, like the public is right on the trend, but wrong on both ends. And, and, and those are the things that if you want like funny stories, um, I mean, we, we could go on for hours. One of the things that, that was so great about open outcry trading mm-hmm. were the people. And what I loved about all of the exchange trading floors is that they reminded me of, uh, of everything that was great about America, frankly, where anybody could come down there just with their wits in their brain and willing to work hard, and they could make something of themselves that was different and better than anything that had happened to their families before. Mm-hmm. And these guys were basically financial pioneers. And I think they were some of the smartest people that, 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 I've, that I've ever been around. And they had incredible senses of humor. So, you know, you, if you would see something trading, you're, or you might call the different trading pits to see what was going on. And I remember one day somebody said, there's nothing going on, but they got two old guys. And we're all betting $500 to see if you can run the fastest around the SBX pit. Something, <laughs> something crazy like that. Now, that doesn't happen anymore. On big bank trading floors, as much as the market has grown and evolved and become such an important part of the global financial markets, we've also sort of lost a little bit of something um, to history. Yeah, um, you know, something, something, something to get the juices flowing or just, you know, when, when there's a, just a little bit of more, dare I say, fun or kind of a lightheartedness to it. I don't know. Maybe not. I think, I think it probably was. I remember the first time I went to an options conference. All about six feet tall and and, uh, and and reasonably fit. And I remember going there thinking like, holy God, I must be in the wrong convention. These guys are all like six foot ten. I thought I was there at like a stevedores convention for dock workers or something. Wow. And, and I was I was one of the smallest guys there. And then you fast forward after electronic training is introduced, and like you know, and it looks like a bunch of guys with degrees in physics mm-hmm. are, are running the markets, and in fact they are. Yeah, that's that's incredible. It, yeah, it's been a funny shift. Uh, so to wrap up here, you, you know, I lo- always want to have my guests plug their own projects, their own website. So I'll give you the floor here. Do you have anything you want to promote, to talk about? I mean, it's the floor is yours. I think the, the only thing that I would promote is that people 
just think a little bit more deeply uh, about what they're doing in the markets, that they consider themselves perpetual students and stay away from ever thinking that they have any sort of mastery over what takes place uh, uh, on the tape, that this world of ours of puts and calls is endlessly fascinating and endlessly changing. And if you give yourself the time to study it, you'll become a better a better investor. And I think you're going to think a lot more clearly. So for, for me to be able to write a column still, mm-hmm. that's always a great gift. I love that connection with this incredible readership. And at the same time, as I look around at the, at the market and, and, and my partners and I look at it, we sort of see a need for a firm like Options Solutions that helps people use puts and calls to curate their own portfolios. And the, um, and the challenges inherent in that are, are, are endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. I always feel like I get, like I get paid to, to, to solve puzzles. And to me, you know, that's what the options market is all about. And I bet you probably feel the same way with, with what you do. And people can sometimes get a little bit, uh, uh, shy or, or or turned off by the initial sort of complexities. Everything seems to be a little bit more difficult mm-hmm. than it really is. But I really think that if anybody just spends just a few hours a month, that, that that's all, trying to understand what happens in these markets of ours, they're going to have much different uh, outcomes. And if they don't have much different outcomes, guess what? They're going to understand why they didn't have much different outcomes. And, and you, that's yeah. And you learn from that. And that's you, right. And then you move forward. Yeah, I, that, that that's that really speaks to me, especially as far as you're solving a puzzle, you're you're figuring out an angle, a narrative. So, I mean, Steve Sears, it's been an honor. Uh, thank, thank you so, so much, much for coming on again. President and COO of OptionsSolutions.com. Check them out there once again. That's OptionsSolutions.com. Uh, check them out on Twitter. Let me pull up his official. Handle here, SM underscore Sears, Vix's uncle. Uh, Steve, again, thanks so much. This was incredible. Had a great time with you. Thank you. Incredibly illuminating. Thank you so much for having me.